Welcome to this episode of The Development Dilemma. This comes from a live event that I held earlier this year in Nairobi, entitled, Where is the Dignity in Aid? I gave it an instruction then, and so we'll jump straight into the recording. What I'd love to do is give you a brief intro into myself, into this podcast, how this evening came about. So my name is Arnav Kapoor. I host the Development Dilemma podcast. And this started about two and a half years ago as an initiative to have tough conversations. Conversations I found in many spaces were being avoided. And so the idea was, what would it mean to take those conversations into a space where we could talk about things like the concentration of Muzungus in Nairobi, the concentration of certain people at power levels within these organizations, around the NGOs that they work with, thinking about the relationships Kenyans and expats have, not just socially, or the absence sometimes of that, but romantically, and what are the consequences and the dynamics of that. So that was really the idea of the podcast, and thanks to many generous panelists and guests who've come along, had trying to more and more of these conversations to dig into this question. And there are two themes that have come out that I wanted to explore. The first of which is this question of power that you can't have a conversation about the challenges in development, about the dynamics of it, without really looking at the power, and not just where the money flows, but looking underlying that. What are some of the structures, what are some of the ways in which power is leveraged and used against certain means? And so how to make that more concrete is looking at the likes of, let's say, UK aid. And you can look at the switch that has happened between DFID, an institute which was more focused, at least in name, around serving people, and a shift towards FCDO, a very explicitly political use of aid to benefit UK business and trade. And what you see are the ways that kind of soft power gets leveraged really strongly at the times when there's negotiation for trade agreements. So that power or that aid that seems to be generous, seems to be kind from the British people suddenly can turn into a lever that's used by the same power structures against the likes of Kenya or other trading partners. So that was one piece of it, to really face that. And I think with the likes of King Charles and that hat thingy that he wears, you get a sense of how they're willing to display their power with their stolen gems, stolen gold from this continent very visibly. And that is a display of the power and the lack of respect (laughs) to many of these countries and people. And I think that's quite visible. (laughs) The second piece, and that's what we'll be touching on more today, is around narrative. So try to think about what are the narratives about we tell ourselves about who we are And then what are the narratives we think about and we express when we think about who they are? And so if I think about myself, there's a narrative I tell myself at the point at which I choose to call myself not a foreigner, not an immigrant, but an expat. A Kenyan going to my country would be called those things, would be shamed, would face pressures and challenges that I simply don't face. And there's a power there, and there's a narrative we tell ourselves about that. It's the same narrative that allows us to live, I think, very cushy lives, to not question or sacrifice in some cases. And it's the kind of narrative that allows the biggest cars in Nairobi to be from the United Nations Environmental Organization. That kind of hypocrisy comes not from malintention, but from a narrative, I think, that we we forget and we ignore. The second piece of it is the narrative of them. And that's what today we'll really be exploring. The narrative about the people we're trying or claiming to serve. The narrative that often we've seen in the most kind of egregious forms in the pictures, in the videos of how we depict Africans or Indians or whoever they may be from the global south. Those are a very visible form of a lack of dignity. 
But there's also other subtle forms, the ways in which I think knowledge, about whose knowledge counts. There's a lot of members from Madara social justice movement and center and other movements here. And these social justice centers are about questioning whose knowledge matters and the importance from the organic intellectuals of trying to show how it's not just these kind of experts from foreign fields who have PhDs who understand community dynamics. There's something inherent about lived experience and lived knowledge that we should recognize. And the kind of proliferation of measurement and evaluation, the metrics, and the ways in which we've reduced people, I think in many ways to numbers, that allow us, and I should define us, and I count myself in that us, but the foreigners here, to extract and abstract from the people and their stories and their realities to look at impact per dollar or outcomes. And that's what we'll explore today is a problem of dignity, of the ways in which we think about and recognize the full dignity of the people we're engaging with and therefore both their knowledge, their existence, their importance, and their lives and their stories. So that was a long background to where this conversation comes from. And I think moving to the first panel we'll be hosting today, we're really lucky to have three great panelists. We have both Wyburn, Kanye Wyburn, representing the Madari Green Movement, who speaks as an artist, as a creator, as someone who's grown up in Madari about the experiences of dignity and indignity. Really lucky to have Caroline Tetti, who brings the director of kind of recipient advocacy at Give Directly, and, and does so both with a view to showing, I think interestingly, what it means to take a very different approach to aid and giving that power away. But similarly, in your own work within Give Directly, which we'll explore, that idea of pushing for recipients and advocating for their voice. And then last but not least, we have Tom Wayne who started a really important thing called the Dignity Initiative, who will be able to speak to really thinking about practically in his role at ID Insight, what does it mean to carry dignity into a workplace, into programs, and operationalize that in a way in which it changes people's experience of programs. So with that, I'd ask each of you to pick up on introducing yourself and give a sense for what dignity means to you. Hi, everybody. Good evening. My name is Waiban, Kanye Waiban. As you've heard, I'm an artist, I'm a rapper, and I'm also a writer. I represent community perspectives and a sense of how we understand dignity in my community, which is Vatare. Being a recipient of aid and charity and coming later in life to reflect on that and begin to question that and begin to question how that whole process, which many of my age mates in Madare have gone through growing up, just to question that and be like, how did it make us feel? How does it now? What impact does it have and in the decisions that we make with our lives now? Okay, my name is Caroline Tetti. I work at an organization called Give Directly, which is a non-profit working in several countries in Africa and also in Asia and the U.S. I sit there as Director of Recipient Advocacy, but today I'm here to speak to the subject of dignity. I'm born Kenyan, definitely have an experience with the aid delivery as I grew up, and also now experience over two decades working within the aid sector. For me, when I think about dignity, I'm thinking about how can we humanize humanity and how can we give people a second chance at feeling of being human. And if you think about it, 
think about moments when you have felt as if you're a less human because of the way another human has treated you or has made a decision about your life. That's why this means a lot to me. It also means a lot to me because within my organization, we work a lot with people who are at that bottom of the pyramid in terms of ability to negotiate power and negotiate dignity. Therefore, I look at dignity at an individual level, but also there are moments when I look at dignity at institutional level and also at geopolitical level. Hi folks, my name is Tom Wayne. I'm so grateful to get the chance to be speaking with you here today and to be having a conversation with these three really brilliant people who I admire so much. I'm from the UK originally. I moved to Kenya in 2016. And really soon after that, started to see an experience that I think many people who work within development or aid or research or have experienced it with, from outside working in it, of seeing the ways that even when people were getting the material aid they needed, and that's vital, of course, they were still coming away from the interactions with aid agencies, frustrated, feeling unseen and unheard, treated at best like a case number and at worst like a child. And those bruising experiences are really at the center of what I've been researching and studying and using all of my training to try and understand as part of the Dignity Initiative for the last seven years now. Fantastic. Well, I think to frame this conversation, it would be really helpful is to get your sense, both from a either experiential or otherwise, a sense of how you define dignity. I mean, it's an, it's an important term, and a definition or words don't do justice, but I'd be curious how you'd conceptualize or express it. To me, it's basically a way to treat someone that allows them to retain their sense of identity, their self-worth, yeah, and just basically not imposing on them what you imagine would be an ideal lifestyle <laughs> for them. When I think about dignity, I think about over 700 million people living in poverty and who most boardrooms are awash talking about and thinking about. And most of the time, what will happen is someone sits somewhere and makes decisions about their lives and decides what their life should look like. Meanwhile, what they don't realize is that clock is ticking and time is going and these people's lives are going on. So as you think about their lives, they're also thinking about their lives. So dignity basically is being able to identify that people have a responsibility for their lives, that just being able to recognize that people love themselves, people love best outcomes for their health, for their lives and their well-being, and just being, being kind enough to recognize that they're human. And I think a lot of times the way aid is structured is we want aid to implement the brain of somebody else, to turn the life of someone to be, to look like what we want it to look like. Caroline talked there about the sort of big inequalities that we wrestle with in, in the sectors that we're thinking about. And Wyburn brought us back to the daily experiences that are at the end of that. And one of the things I love about dignity as a way of thinking about some of these problems is it encompasses both and keeps that focus on the full complex 
messy humanity of the people who aid is supposed to be serving. I think with dignity, you kind of know it when you see it. We all know for sure when a doctor has listened to us or they haven't, when a teacher has seen the full potential we have before we knew it ourselves or has judged us and put us in a box before we've closed the door. We kind of know that. But in my research, I've seen three ways that seem to recur all across different moral traditions around the world of the ways in which people want their humanity to be respected. I tend to call these the three pathways to respect. It varies all over the place, but you consistently see that people want to feel seen by the institutions they're interacting with and see themselves represented in it. And we call that recognition. People want agency. They want choices and a meaningful chance to consent about what's happening to them in their lives. And they want equality. They want a concrete reduction in the power differentials between them and the institution that they're interacting with. And those three pathways of recognition and agency and equality seem to keep turning up wherever you research this in the world. And I, I really think that's a useful way when we're thinking about dignity in a particular case study, maybe even in our own organizations. What I'm loving is the variety and different perspectives you can bring to this question. And another piece of this, to an organization, to a donor, we're speaking of agency, of one of the three facets. But this notion of what does it mean to really implement that process of including voices, engaging them, it's a process that brings costs. And in a world which has been driven recently in particular by this notion of impact per dollar spent or other metrics like that, I'm curious, why should a donor care? Why is, why is dignity important? I think for me, it's important for, say, a donor or someone giving charity to care about how the recipients feel about the aid they're getting because of the longer-term effects it has. I'll give an example of myself and the organization to which I owe a lot of my education. It was an NGO that's Christian missionary-based, usually funded from the U.S. and all. And you'd find that before a child was brought up into sponsorship, there's a certain there are certain things you had to do. You had to bring the missionaries to your home, and there's a certain way that your home is supposed to appear for you to look like you deserve aid. I remember back in the day, when TVs were not as common, you were not supposed to bring the missionaries to a home with a TV or a fridge. That was defined as your well-off to talk about how desperate for need you, you are, your family. Like you had to do all these things to really look like you, you're, you are in need. And that would assure you enrollment into the sponsorship and all. Now, why I talk about the longer term effects is because for me, I think, now in retrospect, that the effect of that is that we were taught to really be vulnerable and to really depend on aid. And if you look at it now, not just for me as one child in Madare, but the many children, thousands of children who've gone through that same process, you find an, a community that doesn't have the agency to change their own situations. We've been taught that 
for, for us to physically see any tangible progress or development within our own community, it has to come from outside assistance. It has to come from this NGO, that NGO, or from this politician and that politician. So I think that long-term effect is what should scare us as receivers of aid and also the people who have good intentions to provide charity. Yeah. Well, it seems like such a gross failure on the part of that organization, but we know it's not a unique failure. This is the sort of things that happen all across this industry. There's just a moral imperative to do the right thing, to do it well, to do the work as it ought to be done, to treat people, to fulfill that implicit promise we make to respect people's dignity when we offer them aid. And that's crucial. We should start there. If we want to go further, we can also see in the research that when people have interactions that are respectful of their dignity, it unlocks these other benefits that we might care about. Benefits to the individual who's treated right, who comes away feeling better treated, having higher well-being, feeling a sense of empowerment. Benefits that the program might care about, people being more willing to recommend that program, more willing to return to that program to complete the sessions if there are multiple sessions. And then benefits to wider society as well. Wyburn pointed to one about the way it ends up, the way that better or worse aid reactions not just don't just stay in that interaction but feed into these wider narratives that's really crucial also when people feel respected when they come away from these institutions feeling treated in the right way we can see in the data that they are more civically engaged but less politically partisan that they are more cooperative with one another including people who are from outside their immediate social group and these are all benefits we should care about as well. Those are bonuses. The first thing is the moral imperative. We have to do this right. Because what else are we doing? That's the whole point of this work. You said something that's really struck me, which is when donors think that it's expensive to think about dignity and invest in dignity. And if you're talking about aid, for example, today, we can confidently say that lots of money has been lost because of a lack of consideration of this specific thing, dignity. That because we think we have the answers and impose it on people, it does not last because it doesn't respond to their needs. And they remain in the situation that they were in. And in our minds, we think we need to go back now. Now we need to go back with water. We need to go back with toilets. We need to go back with books for education yet we are not giving people an opportunity to speak to what they need. The first analogy is basically myself and my relationship with my parents. Right now, I'm working. I got an income. My father doesn't work. My mother doesn't work. They need to be taken care of, and it's our responsibility as their children to do that. So at the end of the month, I get my paycheck, and what I do is get a part of it and send it to them. Send my mother money, send my father money. And I just tell them, money has come in, you got your share for this month. I don't go back to ask them what they've done with money. Aid will ask you, up to under your bed, what their money did for you in your life, sincerely. Who does that? It's very intimidating. And that is why when we do aid and we send support to communities, they call it a facility belonging to such and such an organization. 
because they don't identify with it. They were not part of the decision making for how that thing reached their community. It's not a part of the solution they thought about. I recently was speaking to a very frail old woman who we had sent some cash. My organization sends unconditional cash and what we do is we say we don't know what your needs are but we know that this money could go a long way and help you unlock some challenges that you have in your household. So we give people money and we ask them make the decision for how this money is going to change your life. So recently I visited a homestead where a woman had received $1,000 and five years later we were visiting and she still looked frail. And I went in with a white colleague whose expectation was that $1,000 was supposed to deliver the world. And this woman is supposed to be flying aircrafts and eating pizza and smiling in front of a TV and all those sorts of things. And she's like, but you just look poor. And the woman is like, you don't understand. It's because you're coming from a position of privilege. And I don't know where she got that word from. And she said, at the time this money came, I am sure even if I knocked your door, you would not have come to my aid. I had three grandchildren who needed to complete school. And my son was in ICU. And I was frail and I didn't know what to do with them. This money today has enabled these three children to be in college. Dignity is very important putting the people who are affected by poverty on the decision table is very important. The unfortunate thing is we see a lot of exclusionary decision making where people who decide how aid is supposed to be spent sit on tables on their own and decide what will change people's lives. And I am not speaking about white people only. I'm thinking about even us. How many times do you find yourself with people you identify as knowing more than the other and sit in a corner and decide their lives? I'm going to give a final story of a man who also received money from us. He said, before these transfers came, I was a drunkard. In this community, I was known to be the wasted guy. My wife went, my children went, and I knew I was getting lost in drink. And the reason I was doing this was only known to me. Why? Because I didn't have a bed, I didn't have a mattress. Sleeping on the floor was too painful for me. So I decided I'm better off going out, drinking myself silly. If it finds me by the trenches, I'll be drunk. If I will be home, I'll be drunk. If I'm on a rock, I'm drunk. I'll wake up and life will continue. He got the transfer and he stopped drinking. He bought a bed and he bought a mattress and he started a business. And he said, I can live like a human being. A lot of times, dignity also comes with judgment. We become very judgmental about people. We start saying, if I let them make the decision, they will not think properly. We should help them. And that is where it all begins. And that is where the separation begins. So you can imagine coming with your power and then they're already ready to listen to you. And then you impose another level of power on them. 
literally you silence them. They will never be able to question anything you say. They will never be able to speak for themselves and they will always just feel like they're less human beings. I think it's time for us who are privileged in whatever way. Small People are privileged in different ways. I am privileged. And in my way, I think it's my responsibility to recognize that people who are less privileged, when they come and interact with me, I need to be respectful, I need to trust them, I need to empathize, and then I need to give them an opportunity to feel the power they have in their hands. Yeah, <clears throat> just to build up on what she's saying, it's important that you see when she says how you, you make people feel, for a long time, going back to my school days, why this is important is because that's when you learn how to see yourself and how to see others. And for a long time, the school ran on the premise of it's converting Madare from the valley of darkness. <laughs> yeah? So they were converting Madare from the valley of darkness to the mountain of God. We understood then that we came from that place of darkness, yeah? And that all we needed was light, in which sense they meant Christianity. But you see what happened was by the time uh, I joined schools elsewhere, away from my community, I've grown up knowing that I'm from darkness. I'm embarrassed to even say that, yo, I'm a young man from Madare. <laughs> That's what so many of us were taught. And, and it's, it's a very long struggle to change that mindset. Yeah, because you first have to understand yourself that, oh, okay, I'm not really from darkness. I just didn't come from privilege, <laughs> for instance. So then how do I now reclaim how I would like to see myself? So getting to respect myself becomes now a new journey of restoration. And now if you look at that from an entire community's perspective, there's a greater impact when now myself, my friend, I see a few of my friends here, that we sat together with a few years back and reflected on that and began to devise ways of trying to bring that power back to our hands to begin to define ourselves. One of the things I love in the way you framed that was that it started with this personal, moral transformation, realization, and then you talked about the institutions that you were building up to do that. And I think for all of us, this might be a matter of personal morality, but it goes well beyond that to the places that employ us, to the institutions that make up aid, to the all these rickety, hastily assembled by foreigners bureaucracies that people encounter when they're trying to access material aid. And setting up the structures and systems in a way, and the cultures that underlie that, in a way that are going to result in more respectful interactions is, I think, the real key to this and where we'll need to get to. It has to go beyond just individuals saying, this is wrong, to what are we going to do about this? I think one thing that sometimes we also forget is the fact that for people who are asking of us dignity, that they also understand what it means to be dignified. A lot of times, we create perceptions about people because of our own mental frame of 
what we think about them. And a lot of times, it is a demeaning, dehumanizing, disrespectful perception. And this starts from the lowest level and it goes all the way up. When you do the right thing, and one day you should try this, if you practice dignity, the person who receives the act of dignity from you will come back to you and will let them appreciate it. Because they know what dignity feels like. When you don't treat people with dignity, with respect and trust, they go mute because of what we had said, power. And then for those of us who are sitting in the seats of privilege of power, we assume that because they don't talk, they don't know, which is not true. And I see this at different levels, and it's really, it's really disheartening. If you're talking about gender relations, you will see how dignity plays between men and women. If you're talking about minority populations, you will see how dignity plays for people who are from minority communities or population groups. If you're talking about race, you will see how dignity plays in a room where people of different races are sitting. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is that the person who is undermined does not understand. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Thank you for that. What you speak to, and I think in, in your story, Wyvern, what was really strong was the ways in which from a very young age, these images, these ideas of who you are, of your value, are questioned. And it, it's remarkable how many examples there are out there, and I think we forget about them, we normalize them because of their frequency. So to give you a sense, this was the head of Give Directly, interestingly enough, Rory Stewart, who was talking on his podcast about this great moment in the development space. And what he was referring to was something called Live Aid. And as a show of hands, who's familiar with the song that featured at Live Aid? Some hands, some hands coming up. Do they know it's Christmas? And underlying that, could you not think of a more patronizing, disrespectful way to think about the people, let alone the video and the pictures? But the fact that that's celebrated and continues to be celebrated as one of the key moments in Aid, I think speaks to how endemic our understanding is and our belief of who we're treating. Yeah. You can think of the name Save the Children. From where? From who? These, these are people with parents, with lives, with communities. And yet you're painting them as if they have no agency, no control, no, no care really about who their children are or their communities. And so it's remarkable how, how deep this goes and how much we have to do to kind of unwire our brains from how we've been taught. So to move to the last question before we open up to the audience, and this is your moment to get ready, is a question of how do you operationalize this into an organization? Tom, you touched on it, but your work at ID Inside, I think, is really fascinating on really looking at processes of how one does that. You mentioned already setting up kind of institutions, even smaller level community-based are so crucial to that. And Caroline, I know in your work and Give Directly, it's a very different approach to thinking about that. So perhaps as a last piece, I'd love to get your perspectives on what it means to implement a more dignified, thoughtful approach in the processes of aid of development. I think there's 
a central thing we need to start with, which is diagnosis. Some parts of the processes of aid delivery organisation will be keeping that promise to respect people's dignity, and some parts of the process won't be. So let's look through, let's audit, let's go through what are the experiences of people interacting with this part of the process than with that part of the process. Where are people feeling that they're not being treated right? That's the first thing. The second thing is let's do this in an ongoing way through the tools that we use to check that we're delivering impact. So almost every organization runs some sort of monitoring effort often some sort of survey. We have recently developed and published a, a short survey module that can go into, into any monitoring survey. It's on the ID Insight website that will allow people to, to measure. Are people feeling respected? Are people feeling treated in the right way? The other thing we've recently published is what we call the Dignity Self-Assessment Tool, which is a really quick, introductory, perhaps 15-minute exercise that if you work in an aid delivery organization, you can use to just start to pinpoint what parts of our organization are getting this right and what parts should we be paying more attention to and starting to work to correct. I hope those tools are two things to help us get started on that crucial question of diagnosis, of focus, of where are we going to take action. Yeah, and, and just like Tom, for me, I think it's just a simple human act of listening, yeah, that we have to listen to the people we think we want to help because, as Caroline said, people do know their problems and also allow them the respect of them designing their own solutions for their problems. So many people that I know disgruntled with organizations they've been with because, let me give you an example. <laughs> for a long time, I saw myself to achieve such high academic excellence, yeah? And so many of us saw that. We were told that it doesn't matter if you're the smallest child from the smallest family of the smallest village in the smallest nation, like Gideon in the Bible, that you can one day become this great person. And so you're taught to also dream to be that. And then all of a sudden, it happens that you're kind of ditched and now all your hopes crumble. So many of us fell into crime out of frustration. So many girls that I know became very young mothers. And so many of us have died as well, yeah? Because you're given chances and then all of a sudden you don't have any. And then at the same time, you are not taught to, to be hands-on with your life, to depend on yourself, to have your own sense of agency. So I think we just need to listen to people's problems and their solutions. Yeah, thank you, Wyvern. I was talking to someone recently, and he was saying what we really should do when it comes to aid, speaking to your point, is reframe it as reparations. Because ultimately... It's a very small fraction of what should be paid back, but that's a much better form of understanding the duties and responsibilities. And so you no longer feel like you have a obligation or you should be thankful, but there's an expectation that you deserve this and you're owed it. And thus with that comes, I think, some, some more agency and dignity. Yeah, it's very important. Fundamentally, I think self-awareness is very important in the whole equation of dignity. So I think the first step is let's self-reflect and see what our relationship and interaction with other humans feels like. For whatever it is that we do, we should be able to ask ourselves, would we want that done to us? How would we feel if we were in that situation? 
then you can hold yourself back. The second thing is we need to understand the people that we are interacting with, whether those are communities or individuals, and identify how we can meet them at their point of needs in the most respectful way, to give them the space to interact with us. And sometimes support is not just money. Sometimes even just talking to someone can turn somebody's life around and showing someone that they are worth, like what he's talking about here, letting people know that they are worth the following day is, is just sufficient. I think it will, be, it will be unfair for us to stop this conversation without talking about dignity in data. That we are in an era where we are mining so much data, we are using so much data to make decisions, and it is an area of a new form of exploitation, a new form of disrespect. And I think as we talk about the whole realm of dignity, whether it is delivering aid, human interactions, we should also be asking ourselves how we handle data belonging to a third party, somebody else's information. How are we treating it? Because somebody's data is almost the embodiment of that person. And the way you represent it, the way you treat it, the way you handle it can harm them or can make them feel safe or respected. Amazing. Thank yeah. you. And I've just, what she's saying is very important. As a journalist, there's lots of stories I've wanted to write. And in my research process, I find that somehow all the research of my community has been done by foreigners. The only challenge is that it's now not accessible to you as a, as a community member of that study area. And I think that's also a big part of how we disrespect people and how we underdevelop these communities. Yeah. I think research is on a knife edge, right? It could be, if it was only done right, the best chance to convey the full hopes of somebody's life to people making decisions about their life, if you got it right. And yet so often we know that's not the experience, that the experience of research is of being squeezing somebody's life into the boxes that somebody else has defined for somebody else's research agenda, and then, as Wyburn says, locking that data away in a way that, that can't be accessed. But it has the potential to be central to the process of properly respecting people, mm. if only we could reform the processes of it. Yeah, and perhaps the only thing I would add is that all of that, I'd say, is true, Tom, but in a space where the main forms of decision-making around aid are driven by data. And that's a fairly recent phenomenon. If you look at development processes in the 1960s or earlier, the model and the way in which aid was figured was more on a trust-based model. And it's interesting, recently, we're seeing a shift again back to that. You can think of Mackenzie Scott, uh, who has recently now gone to give away huge grants to many organizations, many in Kenya including that, who are not required to report on any basis. And that's an idea of really trying to step away from the power, from the expectations that come with data. But as you say, within most of the world, which does operate on a more data-based model yeah. for a host of reasons. So with that, I'd like to have a big round of applause for our three panelists. And now it's over to you. So would love to see hands for those who can please ask their question. My name is Irina Sua. I'm a social scientist. Mine is not a question. 
but a concern with the word aid. And I was just looking through the definition of aid. And the moment you see it, there's already an element of inequality. A bigger person reaching out to a voiceless person with no urgency and helping them. So I don't have any faith in the current aid industry, as she called it, because it's an industry. My question that we should ask ourselves is, do we want to keep ourselves in this vicious cycle where we create industrial complexes like the aid industry instead of having working public systems? Do we want to keep the aid going or do we want a working public system? I think everyone in this room, I suspect, has deep criticisms of the aid system as it is and the global power relations that underlie that. I think there is still huge power to ameliorating that, to transforming individual interactions, even if we cannot yet overturn the wider inequalities that underlie it. I just wanted to speak to your question, which is how do we get communities to participate? And the first question we need to ask ourselves is how do we undo the wrongs that we have done? Because we are a part of the problem. And the reason we are a part of the problem is by doing it wrong, we have conditioned people to think about aid in a different way. Most of us in the NGO sector, we start with, we want to train them because they need to know how to cook, how to sing, how to sit down. They need to know, so we need to train them. And because they know they are not even going to take up that knowledge, I know how to sit, I know how to cook. After all, they not give me what to cook. I will go back and cook my Miranda. They come in with an attitude of the NGO has arrived, let's go and cash in. So we start modeling people to behave in a certain way. And once they get conditioned, then now we start complaining. Thank you. My name's Mark. I work in the development sector. I'm very pro this push around encouraging nonprofits and the aid sector to think about dignity. It does feel, though, like, I mean, the aid sector is very good at responding in these ways. Say, measure client satisfaction. It'll do it. Say, that give out cash transfers now. It'll do it, right? But, I mean... I suppose I look at other countries as they get wealthier. I look at India, I look at Southeast Asia and so on. And ultimately, I mean, it's governments who've said dignity doesn't... A lot of these organizations are going to have to go for, for the countries to get to what dignity looks like. And so I just almost wonder whether we should be dreaming a bit bigger rather than these tweaking around the edges to sort of understand what that change will look like. Because it feels like if we don't, then what will happen is there'll be a government who'll come to power and say, actually, all foreign funding's banned. One of the things I've heard across a whole bunch of the questions is a lot of practical steps we might want to take. One gentleman right at the start talked about transparency and the way in which he had felt communicated with by the organisation that had given him some aid. And you, madam, were talking about participation and the ways in which that can feel very frustrating when we get it wrong, but the ways in which that seems to have the potential to do things right. Another gentleman was talking about the, the value of 
a different kind of transparency of knowing where the money's going, of knowing how the financial flows are operating. And the gentleman was talking about the environment around us and how crucial that is for feeling a sense of respect. All of these seem like really important things. The further thing beyond that, and I think what, what those last couple of questioners and also Gacheke earlier were pointing us towards, what's the dream beyond that? And to me, it's a change in the way that bureaucracies see humans. Right now, bureaucracies are really good at seeing a case number in front of them, a few particular categories of problem that they are built to solve. The great teacher we all had at, saw at school who knew who we could be before we even knew it ourselves, there's no reason why that relationship, that type of interaction needs to be confined to education. The best kind of bureaucracies have that kind of relationship with the people they serve. There are hard trade-offs to do there. There is a leap of imagination needed to get there. There is a set of political incentives that we have to negotiate to get there. But we can begin to imagine a different type of relationships and a different set of institutions that relate to people as people. The problem that we have is even here, where we have aid flowing in, we need to ask questions about the systems, how our public systems are working. Because we really need to have a working public system for us to be able to have a voice when aid comes. The reason we don't have a voice is because our government has squandered our dignity. And the reason they've done that is because they have failed to deliver on their commitments to the people and some of the vices that we hear about all the things that happen in our countries is because people in a vulnerable position are waiting days on end for our governments to deliver on their promises to them. So it is time for us to think about both sides. How do we make public systems in the global south work to meet the needs of the people? And then how do we also question the aid architecture so that those fine lines are understood and that for whatever it is that a dollar will deliver to a people living in vulnerability, let it deliver. But let us not use vulnerable people as tools for people to meet objectives. Yeah, and for me, I like the question on, I think it's Chari who asked, yes. uh, how, at what point this cycle of giver and receiver ends? And I think I would tie it to what she asked about education, that it all begins at education level. Especially children need to start being taught from a very young age their true history in a sense of localizing education. Yeah, because for me and for Wanjao and everyone else that we grew up with in Madari, if we would have been taught about the historical injustices, I think we would have grown up with a better sense of urgency. If we would have been taught that, you're supposed to depend on yourself rather than you're supposed to write to this sponsor from Texas or <laughs> wherever. Yeah, I think that we will have, will have had a better way of changing our own circumstances. Well, I think with that, we'll now look to close this panel. And I just want to say a final big thank you to all three of you for giving the time and just sharing, I think, such profound and really interesting thoughts. So I'll have a final round of applause. Sit down and let's
I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I've been thinking a lot about the relationship of power and narrative to shape the aid industry. And dignity is a really important lens with which to both challenge the narrative and be able to understand and identify how power is being used and misused. It also presents a really useful metric by which to measure ourselves against as we go about our lives, be it day-to-day or at work. And I hope it's something which aid organizations think seriously about as a critical component of the way they do their work and even think about their work. Thanks as always for listening. Please, please do share your thoughts. Rather than speaking to avoid, it would be amazing to hear from you and get your perspectives on these things. So feel free to reach out on social media or in any other form. Oh, yeah.